a deep dive into authoritarianism and corruption in the era of Trump. I'm your host, Lindsay Beierstein, and my guest today is Sanho Tri, director of the Drug Policy Project at the Institute for Policy Studies and a longtime critic of the war on drugs. The Breach is part of Rewire.News, your go-to site for news and commentary on health, rights, and justice. Last week, Donald Trump abruptly announced that he was going to declare a state of emergency for opioid addiction after all. He'd said he was going to do it in August and then seemingly forgot about the whole thing. Now Politico reports that he's blindsided his advisors by telling everyone the plan is dropping this week. This is a problem because the key people Trump needs to design and implement such a plan have either resigned or failed to be confirmed. Tom Price stepped down as Secretary of Health and Human Services in September to seek help for his government jet travel addiction. And Representative Tom Marino withdrew his bid to head the Drug Enforcement Agency last week after the Washington Post revealed that Marino was a pawn of the drug distribution industry and a key player in passing a law the DEA claims is hobbling the agency's bid to stop the diversion of opioid pills to the black market. And the acting head of the DEA stepped down in September because he believes Donald Trump lacks respect for the rule of law. Sanho, welcome to the program. Pleasure to be here. Everyone's talking about Scott Hyam and Lenny Bernstein's investigative piece in the Washington Post about how Big Pharma got the better of the DEA and the whole thing kind of ended Tom Marino's aspirations to head the Drug Enforcement Agency. What do you think of the piece and the fallout from it? I think it was, you know, a very useful and important piece. The industry has tremendous power in Washington. It's not just the DEA, however. Uh, It's the industry as a whole, the pharmaceutical industry and their lobbying power. So it's not unusual. I think, though, the my my criticism of the piece is that it kind of um, implies that the DEA knows what they're doing. Uh, And so, yes, these wholesalers were definitely problematic and engaging in all kinds of really bad activities um, and driving this this crisis. But the DEA solution, however, is also in many ways equally short-sighted in the sense that if you've ever heard the expression, if you go through life as a, uh, you know, a hammer, all the world's problems look like nails. And the DEA is the ultimate hammer in that sense. The idea is that they only go after supply over and over again, whether it's interdiction, eradication, or some form of, of prosecution, really hasn't uh, solved any of these problems and, in fact, can make the problem worse. So the time to have clamped down in terms of regulation would have been 15 or 20 years ago when Purdue Pharma and these other companies were marketing these uh, new opioids as being non-addictive. That should have been a red flag, number one. But their marketing practices has now been documented extensively, not just by uh, the Washington Post and, and 60 Minutes, but you know the Charleston Gazette has done some tremendous reporting on this, uh, LA Times, for instance. And now that, however, you have a full-blown problem, the, C- the DEA solution was still to shut off supply. And if you do that, when you have a large population of people who are now dependent on these opioids, you're throwing them to the wolves. It's like throwing them into shark-infested waters saying, okay, you go out there now and deal with your addiction. And many of them moved over to illicit drugs, to heroin. Um, and the heroin market, since 2012 especially, has been contaminated with lots of fentanyl and its analogs. And fentanyl is much, much, much more potent than heroin. And the analogs, like carfentanil, can be you know, 10,000 times more potent than, than morphine. And so these are extremely dangerous drugs that are showing up on the street of black market heroin. And I think it's absolutely irresponsible 
for the DEA to try to shut off supply of still dangerous, but at least legal and pure uh, opioids and throw these people to the wolves and to say, fend for yourself, because it really becomes Russian roulette once you're in the black market. Um, it doesn't mean that everyone who was on prescription opioids uh, moved to the black market, but many people did. Uh, and this is where why we're getting such a uh, huge uh, opioid uh, overdose crisis today. One thing that I thought was odd about the piece was that they had all these sort of examples of horrible diversion that happened, you know, in the 2010, early 2010s. But then the law that they said is the most horrible thing only passed in 2016, in the spring of 2016. And it doesn't seem, there doesn't seem a lot of evidence in the piece that drug diversion has increased since the law was passed. Yeah. Um, actually, I was a part of a focus group earlier this year. By the uh, well, they, they never tell you who who's funding a focus group, right? Uh, right? And but you can piece together, you know, kind of an idea of what at least what industry it is, and probably which side of the industry. And sure enough, this focus group turned out to be about distributors. And you know, did you were you aware of the role of distributors? And and there are you know three or four big ones in this country that basically control that market. And the focus group is about how do we deflect upcoming criticism about this. And so they tested things like, you know, uh, uh, is it a, a, you know, it's a shared responsibility. It's, it's really, it, you know, how does this sound to the focus group? And uh, what about other scenarios of, of different wording? It's like, well, we have existing laws and regulations that just need to be enforced more. That sort of thing. How do you mitigate and, and the, you know, deal with that kind of spin? So it's, it's not unusual. They knew this was coming and the diversion problem, um, has been going on for a very long time. I mean, you know, shutting down pill mills in Florida, for instance, which was a big problem here. Again, you can't do that without giving people safe alternatives. Otherwise, you're asking for trouble. Um, similarly, with uh, the, the situation in, in West Virginia, and a lot of that was in the border areas uh, near Ohio and other states that are quite devastated uh, by, this, by this problem as well. They're shipping tremendous amounts of opioids to tiny towns that really have no business consuming that many. So this was a clear case of, of, of diversion going on. And why is the DEA unable to act when they see that 2 million opioid pills are being dropped into a county of 9,000 people? Well, uh, you know, again, as the 60 Minutes piece uh, made clear, they were running into a lot of opposition from uh, higher political levels within DEA and within Congress. Um, and of course, that's the industry flexing their muscle, protecting themselves. So it's it's not unusual. Um uh, but it is actually, you know, quite disgusting. But if you want to look at how the revolving door works uh, in Washington, it again, it, a lot of these DEA officials that had been in, in charge of enforcement in, during their careers were now working for the industry. This happens over and over again. So you you hear uh, it's not uncommon to see commercials on on late night TV, for instance, about IRS uh, agents. Are you having problems with the IRS? Well, I have 30 years experience in the IRS, and I will help you get around these laws. And they did the same thing with with pharmaceutical companies and the DEA. Um, it also happens on a huge, much much larger scale in the Defense Department in the Pentagon. That revolving door, where you know you serve in your official capacity and then you retire, and then you go work for the industry because you know exactly which buttons to push and how to get around the regulatory obstacles that you were once in charge of enforcing. People change sides in this town all the time. Yeah, uh, it's very disheartening, and it should really be. It, it should it should give us some some warning about uh, motivations. So. Yes, the DEA did have a point about diversions and stuff, but they get rewarded on 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 interdiction, eradication, source source control. That's their that's their bread and butter, and that's what they do. And whether it's wise to do that at this point 
uh, in this crisis. After the, the the horses left the barn, you know, it's too late to close the door. And if you do close that door, you're opening it up to you're opening people up to all these other indirect consequences, fentanyl and contaminated heroin, that sort of thing. I feel like this story might be a chance to change the narrative around how the opioid addiction crisis spread, that people kind of have this stereotype, and even the media doing interviews with the uh, journalists who did the expose seem to be assuming that it was sort of well-meaning pain doctors addicting legitimate pain patients one at a time, and that's how we got so many addicts. But this story seems to shed light on a whole new aspect of the problem that hasn't gotten nearly as much media play, which is there is and was diversion on an industrial scale with these drugs going straight to the black market. Yes, and they knew exactly which regions they were going after as well. Um, and it's not to say that uh, every patient who was prescribed lots of opioids um, eventually went onto the black market. So if you're if you're parish priest or if you're professor or whoever, you know they may have de- developed a dependence, but that doesn't mean they necessarily went to to heroin, the street drugs. But those people who did have connections to that world, and uh, that is to say, they knew which phone calls to make because they associated with with people who were in those circles. That was a much easier jump to make, uh, and so that's what they did. And I think we need to look at the regions where these things were happening as well. There is a whole field called the deaths of despair, right? And I think it's a, there's an interesting coincidence, um, not necessarily correlation, but striking coincidence of where the opioid crisis is hitting the hardest and where Donald Trump uh, did very well electorally. I think a lot of opioids are, are very useful ways to, to numb the pain of your, your existence. If you don't believe that tomorrow is going to be a better day. If you believe that your best days are behind you, a lot of people turn turn inwards. Opioids are a very soothing way to do that. It's like the, the softest pillow you've ever slept on, the warmest bed. Um, and it's easy to, to relive old memories, particularly fond memories, right? You can remember times uh, during your childhood. You can recall, recall that very and relive it very vividly in your head very often. Um, and so there is a real seduction there of, of opioids. But I think ultimately we need to look at why people choose to self-medicate at such relatively high levels in our country, uh, where the United States consumes half the pain medication in the world, basically, and address those underlying issues, which I think are rooted in issues of poverty, despair, and alienation. And the latter two cut across class lines in very profound ways that we don't often want to talk about. But I think there is no substitute for building a healthy society. And I think the, the hollowed out regions of this country where people are, are really hurting and the economy has left them uh, behind and they don't have other things to look forward to become much more susceptible. Um, ultimately, I think the best prevention message I can think of is to give people a reason to look forward to tomorrow. And when that, when they lose that, um, all kinds of bad things happen, not just drug dependence, but uh, all these other, um, antisocial behaviors or or destructive behaviors happen as well. I think it's really interesting that the opioid system is engaged when we have social bonding, like between mothers and infants or other human beings, and that people may be turning to opioids to kind of replicate what they used to get through the normal social fabric of communities. Yes, I think in particular, we have evolved a world and life ways that are not sustainable, that don't really make a lot of sense. Uh, And it's inchoate. Uh, so people don't really know how to put a finger on it, but something is profoundly wrong. I, for instance, uh, I'm always impressed when I, when I visit indigenous communities around the world and look at the basics of what it takes to build a healthy community. 
And I give great credit to any society that can replicate itself over six or seven generations, right? And that's something we have not figured out how to do, because in terms of post-World War II transnational modern capitalism, we don't know more than, you know, we don't have more than, than two or three generations of, of uh, data, and we don't know how sustainable this is. And, it, and the early returns suggest that it's not sustainable at all. Whereas, for instance, my father went back to our ancestral village a few years ago and brought back a, a copy of our family scrolls, the family tree. That thing went back, I, I knew it went back a ways, but I had no idea it went back 26 generations, right? We think wow. to the year 637 or something like that. Mostly illiterate peasant farmers, but in a Confucian culture where you talk to reveal your ancestors, you record all that stuff down uh, or get someone who's literate in the village to write it down. But the reason I'm bringing this up is that my life and, and just the energy resources alone, I have consumed more than all of my ancestors combined, simply because I live a modern lifestyle. I go to the local Trader Joe's here and I get a bag of organic spinach. It's $1.69. I look at the label and it was produced in China. Have we lost the ability to grow spinach in this country? And yet we ship this frozen across the world's largest ocean, across an entire continent. So I could save 10 cents on a bag of spinach. How do you explain to you know the seventh generation, your great, 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 great grandchildren down the line that, sorry, we destroyed the world and the environment, but I saved 10 cents on this bag of spinach and it made sense to do that. We don't think about these things anymore. And those life ways, which had kept our communities and our societies stable over many generations, have been eroded. We look around us and we've created this world of, of silicon, petroleum, steel, sil you know, and concrete. And we think this is normal. This is how things were meant to be. It could only have been this way. And in fact, we forget that this is how we arrived because of a series of choices that we've made as a society or refused to make because we privatized and deregulated everything. So the market then decides for us what's best. We don't have elders anymore the way that, that uh, you know traditional societies would have elders and say, well, maybe you want to think twice before doing this thing. Uh, the market decides. And the market doesn't care about the next generation. It cares about current profits and maximization of profits now. Combine that with a political system where you elect people who are concerned about two, four, six-year election cycles, and as soon as they're elected, they think about re-election. So whose job is it to ask the big questions? The, the elders of the Iroquois Confederation used to ask, how would the decisions we take today affect the seventh generation down the line? Right? That is good, holistic, long-term thinking. And we we don't have those people. We, we have elders, we'd lock them in retirement homes and say, what do you know? You're old. Uh, and yet there's tremendous wisdom there that we're, we're not allowing to come to the surface. And we're careening. We're literally making this up as we go along uh, in this world that we created. And nobody knows if it makes sense or not. And I think a lot of drug use, you know, in, in my global experience, is in some ways a logical response to a world gone mad. It's interesting you mentioned the absence of elders and the status of elders in our culture. I think that might connect with the deaths of despair, that you've got these people who are in their 50s, who in a more traditional society would have a revered place at the top of a clan. And in our society, we've just got a narrative of decline, of obsolescence. Yeah. And in fact, you know, the, the, the drug war is one of the most interdisciplinary issues I've ever worked on, and that's what makes it hard to solve. And so you could tie all kinds of, 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 of issues, other problems to this and look at the how they interact. For instance, NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement that passed in the mid-90s, right? And the technocrats who, who conjured up this treaty never thought about uh, basic questions of, of how will people raise children 
um, who aren't used to these new realities. So if you look at, for instance, the cornerstone of rural Mexican peasant life for you know, centuries revolved around corn and the planting cycles of corn. And, uh, you know, your, your songs, your rituals, your, your ceremonies, your customs, uh, were very much rooted to the land and, and to those planting cycles. And suddenly our technocrats say, well, we can produce corn much more cheaply in the United States and we can ship it to you. That'll free up your labor. They can work in sweatshops, maquiladoras, you know, and, and, and that will develop your country. These technocrats never ask, well, how will these new parents raise children in a completely alien environment of petroleum, steel, silicon, and concrete? Uh, what songs will they teach them? What traditions? How how will they teach them how to behave and sustain themselves over future generations? And so it's the eternal story of the city mouse and the country mouse, right? Different cultures and, and different ways of adapting. And these kids have suddenly, both parents are working in, in, in factories or, or other jobs. They're at the lowest end of the socioeconomic ladder, so they have no status. And here come the narcos and the gangs uh, offering you instant respect. You get a gun and social mobility. You have cash for the first time. Uh, and so you now have an inexhaustible reservoir of what the Pentagon calls trigger pullers, willing to live as a king for a year or two rather than a pauper for a lifetime. And so those life ways that we destroyed through trade agreements come back to haunt us in other ways. I'm not saying there's a direct straight line necessarily all the time, but we're not even thinking about these dimensions and it matters. And that's where elders, I think, really come in. If we could just change gears for a moment. Donald Trump has announced that he's going to be meeting with the president of the Philippines, President Duterte, when he goes to Asia next month. And he's praised Duterte's very brutal anti-drug policies that involve death squads. Can you uh, recap what's going on in the Philippines and why we should be concerned about that? Yeah, so President uh, Rodrigo Duterte was elected on a very tough-on-drugs platform. He vowed that he would kill so many people that the fish in Manila Bay would grow fat from their corpses. And people thought, well, he's just, you know, talking out of, uh, you know, just, just exaggerating. Uh, and he actually set out to fulfill on uh, his campaign promises. So by some estimates, the death toll now since he took office end of last June um, ranges from 7,000 in the low end to about 13,000 in the high end. And if you take that number, that amounts to basically killing one person or more than one person every hour since he's been in office. These are largely death squad killings or, or vigilante killings, and a smaller fraction is done by the police, where the police always, always say that the victim resisted arrest. Um, they'll often you know, be, be shot, and they'll find handcuff marks around their wrists, and they'll plant the gun uh, on the right hand when the shooter uh, with the victim was actually left-handed. So all these things, uh, these, these patterns over and over again of extrajudicial killings, and these vigilante uh, death squads have been funded by the police. There's been lots of reporting and documentation uh, of that, but they're slightly more deniable. And so earlier this month, President Duterte said, okay, fine. Um, you know, people are complaining about all these scandals and, and, and killings and stuff. I'm going to tell the national police to back off on the drug war and I'm going to turn it over to the Philippines DEA. Well, they've only got more than a little more than a thousand field agents they can deploy versus the entire national Philippine police. So that's not going to sustain any of his, his, his programs in terms of uh, his all out war on drugs. What I think that's about, however, is the upcoming ASEAN meeting in, in Manila, which they're hosting. This is the 50th anniversary of ASEAN, the, the, the coalition of uh, Southeast Asian nations. And Trump will be going there as well. 
And it is, you know, and I think a lot of domestic opposition should be credited for getting President Duterte to, to call off the national police. But I think it's also inconceivable that the Trump administration did not pressure the Philippine government to say lay off the drug war killings, at least until ASEAN, the ASEAN meeting is over and, and, and Trump's visit is over. Because otherwise, every other international news story is going to focus on death squads and, and these extrajudicial killings and also the role of Donald Trump and his relations with the Philippines. So Trump has been very controversial about this. He, One of the first international leaders he called, even before he was sworn into office, was President Duterte. He complimented him on the drug war, saying, you're doing it right. And President Duterte responded in kind. He appointed the developer of Trump Tower Manila, of course there had to be a real estate connection here, as his special representative to the United States. So this incestuous relationship has been going on for a, for a while now, and it runs smack into the emoluments clause of the Constitution. And now Trump is going to go to Manila for the ASEAN meeting and may have a private bilateral meeting with President Duterte. So I think they want to be able to say, look, the, that's the old drug war, the Philippines. They've called off the police and things are, are cooled down now. I think what it really means in, in, in terms of operationally is that it'll be less uh, uniform police getting involved in these encounters and killing people and more outsourcing to, you know, shadowy death squads. But also, I think they'll probably ratchet down some of the killings up and through the mid, mid-November meetings of ASEAN. After that, I think they'll go back up again. Uh, but I hope not. I was reading a report from the Council on Foreign Relations about the situation, and they were claiming that the Philippines is overstating its drug problem, that they've added a couple million people to their roster of supposedly drug-addicted people. Oh, absolutely. And can you yeah. talk about why that is, like what domestic landscape they're obscuring with that? Yeah. So the Philippines has a big problem with uh, methamphetamines, what they call shabu, which is usually smoked, and it's smoked them, uh, usually consumed amongst the, the poorest of the population, and that's who's bearing the brunt of this drug war. But the drug use rates aren't that extreme in, relative to other countries in the region. But President Duterte has his habit of exaggerating things beyond all recognition. So that before he took office, the Bureau of Dangerous Drugs in, in the Philippines estimated there were 1.8 million uh, drug-dependent people, uh, drug abusers, however they choose to define that. President Duterte, after he takes office, claims suddenly that there are 3 million drug addicts in the country. And he famously boasted that you know Hitler killed 3 million Jews. Those are his numbers. And he said, I would be happy to kill 3 million drug users. Um, and then later on, he inflates that number to 4 million. And then, uh, and most recently last month, the Foreign Secretary of New York gave a speech at the UN General Assembly where he claimed that suddenly the number was now 7 million. So something's not adding up here. And especially the, their, their policy of killing people <laughs> isn't working if your numbers are multiplying that rapidly, right? So yes, there's a huge exaggeration going on in terms of numbers. But President Duterte has exaggerated all kinds of things. For, so for instance, one of the foundations his drug wars built upon is this lie where he says that if you smoke shabu for more than six months, your brain will shrink to the size of a walnut or the size of a baby's brain. People repeat this stuff and they use this to justify the killings. They say, well, there's nothing we can do. Uh, they're, they're beyond redemption. They, they can't be cured. So you have to kill them. Uh, and this is a very common perception. So the drug war, unfortunately, remains very popular, although he's starting to lose some support in the poorer demographics because they're being targeted. But it's still overwhelmingly popular in the Philippines, unfortunately. There's been no uh, winds of reform uh, blowing through there. And so when you have years and years of dehumanization of drug users, 
what's happening in the Philippines is a classical pogrom, if you will, right? Like under Tsarist Russia, where they targeted Jews. And they're using drug users as a scapegoat. And the term scapegoating comes from the biblical era, where the priest or the rabbi would confess the sins of a village literally onto a goat and then drive the goat out of the village while they're cleaned, they're cleansed. And what President Duterte has done here is basically take a cornucopia of social ills that are endemic to a very uh, unequal, impoverished society and take all those uh, problems and project it onto one group, the, the drug users, and say, if we just got rid of them, everything would be wine and roses again. So you have the scapegoating that's turned into a pogrom that is really based upon uh, an eliminationist ideology. Is he using these killings to kill other kinds of political enemies that might be threatening to him that might not even be involved in the drug trade? That's harder to document, but certainly uh, journalists have been targeted. The Philippines is one of the most dangerous countries in the world for journalists. So, And there are a lot of journalists who considers his you know, enemies for criticizing him. But he's also, you know, accused of uh, human rights people. He, he said, you know, he wanted to behead some human rights critics. Uh, he says these things that <laughs> on camera, um, he's more Trump than Trump in that sense. The things that pop into his head come right out of his mouth. It does sound eerily familiar. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Um, but again, it's a, it's a very effective form of scapegoating. People are paying a very high price for it. What do you think an effective drug policy for the Philippines would look like? I think, uh, number one, there are lots of harm reduction principles that could be applied to this. But also, the, at the end of the day, just like the United States, there is no substitute for building a healthy society. And you have to do something about this extreme inequality and, uh, and to give people a reason to look forward to tomorrow. It's not that different, for instance, when I used to work in East Baltimore back in the late 90s. I would uh, come across communities that were completely devastated and it was high rates of, of, of drug use. Um, you see that the wire, the corner, uh, those were those neighborhoods. And I would come across, you know, communities that had no, no jobs to speak of, no access to job training programs, no transportation infrastructure to the suburbs where the jobs might exist. Um, and I see politicians come into these communities and say, aha, I see what your problem is. Your problem is drugs. We'll give you more police. We'll prosecute these people. That'll solve your problems. And you can't just say to these people, you know, no, you need to be sober and have no job and no hope and no future, no opportunity. That is not a workable or a sustainable substitute for an effective uh, drug control program, which involves building a healthy and just society. Sanho, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for coming on the program. My pleasure. Thanks so much. (laughs) And now it's time for recommended reading a hand-picked selection to deepen your understanding of the current political moment. Today's selection is by Sean King in The Intercept, entitled, Kelly's Lies Are Part of a Pattern of Not Believing Black Women. Representative Frederica Wilson, a black congresswoman from Florida, criticized the president's ham-fisted condolence call to a fallen African-American soldier's family. Trump called Wilson a liar, but she had witnesses to back up her account because she and the family heard the whole thing on speakerphone. Then Kelly was sent out to attack Wilson again. Instead of apologizing for his lying boss, Kelly assailed Wilson and the Gold Star family for the made-up offense of listening to a presidential condolence call on speakerphone. Then Kelly tried to smear Wilson as a loud, crass woman who bragged about money and her ties to President Obama at a solemn building dedication. Video of the event showed that none of this happened. 
So now we've got two angry old white men berating three grieving black women rather than acknowledging their own inability to make a phone call and talk about feelings. This could be a metaphor for the whole administration. King argues that Trump and Kelly thought they could get away with these blatant lies because of our society's general unwillingness to believe black women and acknowledge black pain. That's it for recommended reading. The Breach is produced by Nora Hurley for Rewire Radio. Our executive producer is Mark Folletti. Our theme music is Dark Alliance, performed by Darcy James Argues, Secret Society. And I'm your host, Lindsay Beierstein. Follow Rewire at Rewire underscore news for the latest on the issues that matter most. See you next week.